The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 10, 13 through 34. And the word of God speaks to us like this. And they were bringing children to him that they might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who were followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. This is the word of God to us. Holly, thank you for reading. I told her while she was at it, just go ahead and read the rest of the book of Mark, uh, all the way through chapter 16. And she said, well, I'll just go ahead and stop at 34. Uh, hey, I'm really glad that you're here today. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors, and um, it's a privilege to get to open God's word with you today. So if you've got a Bible, open to Mark chapter 10. It's where we're going to be, the passage that was just read. And um, I don't know if we say this sort of thing in church, but happy Halloween. <laughs> happy Halloween. I was sad that you guys didn't come in your costumes today. The kids' ministry killed it. We're struggling. Um, hey, listen, I'm really glad to jump in this text today. I'm excited for it, um, but we've got a lot of work ahead of us, and so uh, I'll cut the banter, and I'll just say, hey, let me, let me pray. You pray for me. I'll pray for you, and then we'll see how God would shape us by his word. Amen. Father, thank you for our time together this morning already. 
Thank you for the, for the various places that you're bringing us into this room. I know that this morning has been encouraging to some. Um, even this sacred space has been a deep breath for some. But I know for others, God, there's, there's anxiety and there's nervousness and there's, um, there's doubt. And God, thank you that you're, you're just not, um, you're not bothered by us and you're not inconvenienced by us. And you're not, uh, you're not on your heels trying to figure out what to do with us. And so we come before your word today and we ask that you would help us to hear it. We ask that you'd help us to be formed by it. And we ask that you would help us to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit as we would see Jesus, your son. And we ask this to your glory, Father. We offer this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus. And all the church said, amen, amen. Well, I want to jump in with the intro today. Um, kind of charting into some deep waters from jump. And so do this thought experiment with me. When you hear the words weak, dependent, and needy, what comes to mind? When you hear the words weak, dependent, and needy, what, what comes to mind? How do you feel about those words? Do you think about yourself in terms of those words? How do you feel about others or think about others that you might use those words to describe? Now let's shift and think about these words, strong, disciplined, and successful. How do you feel about those words? How do you think about yourself in terms of those words? How do you think about and feel about other people that you might use those words to describe, right? Very, very different set of descriptors and very different feelings come with this string of words. And see, here's what's happening that I wanna open us up today just to acknowledge all of us have an ideal self. All of us have an ideal version of ourselves, a Polaroid picture that we want to be, that we want other people to see, that we want other people to think of us as, a version that we believe other people want us to be. Not just that we want to be, but that we think other people want us to be, a version that we believe that we need to be if people are going to stay with us and not abandon us. But it's also true that we have an actual self. There's a Polaroid picture out there, but there's also what's functionally true. We might try to avoid it, but it's who we really are. What we really know about ourselves, regardless of what we try to project to other people, regardless of what we want other people to see, what we know deep down inside of us. The parts of us that we know don't match the Polaroid, right? If I can say it that way. And I don't think that any of us here are entirely opposed to being weak, needy, or desperate. We're not, we're not entirely opposed to those things. We have sentiment for those things. We have value for those things. There's a place for those things. We're not opposed to them, but just so long as we don't stay that way, right? <laughs> I'm not opposed to being in a weak spot in life just as long as I don't stay there. I'm not opposed to being desperate just so long as I graduate from there. I'm not opposed to being needy just so long as those places in my life provide me the lessons that I need to achieve the greatness that I want to achieve right? We're not opposed to those things just so long as we stay there. And so here's what's happening all through the book of Mark. Jesus is not just proclaiming to us the kingdom of God. Remember his first sermon in chapter 1, verse 15. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He's like, you're looking at him. The kingdom of God is coming in Jesus. He's not just here to proclaim the kingdom of God. We also see as the book unfolds, he's demonstrating the kingdom of God. I'm not just telling you that God's rule and reign is here. I'm showing you what it looks like in his ministry to the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and the down and out. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just proclamation. It's not just demonstration. It's there's also invitation. Hey, I'm not just telling you about something, and I'm not just showing you something. I'm actually saying, come join me. Come follow me. And then to come follow him means this. And here's where I want us to start moving today. It means to be formed by him. That to follow him means to be changed by him, means to be formed by him. And all that sounds well and good. Yeah, I want to join in with Jesus. Yeah, I want to follow him. A man who can talk like that, a man who can do the things that he can do, a man who's raised from the dead. I'm all in on following Jesus. I'm all in on being formed by him until, <laughs> until the formation that he brings is counterintuitive to what seems natural and conventional to us. I'm all for being formed by Jesus until being formed by him means he confronts me and he stings me then that's a different conversation altogether. Do I still want to be formed by him? Do I still think his word is worth following? And the challenge of today's passage is that if you've had any time in church, you're familiar with it. The, 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 the passage about the children coming to Jesus, the, the passage about the rich young ruler, you've probably heard lessons over this time and again. The challenge is that you're familiar with it, but don't let your familiarity rob you from a fresh encounter. Don't you let your familiarity rob you from a fresh encounter because I think, and here's the trembling that honestly I felt last evening around dinner time as I was thinking around this passage. I can't think of a passage that is as confrontational to Bible Belt, middle class religion as this passage. So there's familiarity, but our familiarity probably doesn't confront us with things. <laughs> Which is why I want you to see this with new eyes today, because I can't think of a passage that draws a line in the sand more than this one around Bible Belt, conservative, value, middle class religion as this one. And if we do this right today, if by the help of the Holy Spirit, like I can help unfold this today and let the text breathe, we ought to feel exposed. <laughs> Welcome to church. <laughs> We ought to feel challenged. And I don't have a clear outline today. I typically like to have three movements or three parts that we can sort of track through. I don't have an outline or a clear structure of points today, but I will give you the main idea of the text. And here's what I want to do. After giving the main idea, just unfold it and just see how this text drives toward that end. Here's the main idea. The kingdom of God is a matter of trust and dependence, not merit and status. The kingdom of God is a matter of trust and dependence, not merit and status. So let's jump in, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, and he laid his hands on them. So here's what happens. This text picks up 
with apparently lots of families bringing their children to Jesus for him to bless them. Here's a man who talks like no one else talks. Here's a man who's doing things that no one else is doing. Clearly the Spirit of God is on this man. Would you please bless our children? Would you please, would you please sort of consecrate our children unto God and the things of God? But here's what happens. The disciples see all of these families bringing their children to Jesus, and they rebuke them. They're, they see themselves as the handlers of the Son of God, like they're his bodyguards, right? It's like, hey, can you please get your kids away from him? He's the God man, don't you understand? He's got busier things to do, more important things to do than to deal with your toddlers. And they look at Jesus as though he's going to be so proud of them. Thank you for getting those kids away from me. No, what happens is that they rebuke the families and then Jesus rebukes the disciples. <laughs> it says indignantly, he turned to the disciples like, what's wrong with you guys? Let the children come to me. Let, let the children come to me. And here's a side point that I just want to make that's free and extra, but I think it's important to see here. Jesus dignifies every life at every stage of life. Jesus here slows down to dignify every life, at every stage of life, even to the point, consider this, that he came to share life at every stage of development with us. Jesus joins us from conception onward in the human experience. If God sees, if you wonder what God thinks of humanity, consider the incarnation that he would join us at every stage of human development. He dignifies it. But notice the invitation, but notice the invitation to formation that verse 15 brings. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like one of these children, like a child, they shall not enter it. They shall not enter it. He takes this moment and he uses it to draw a line in the sand. This isn't a suggestion uh, of sentimental warmth um, to how cute kids are. Hey, we should be like kids. This isn't what he's doing. This isn't about uh, anything other than a mission-critical formation that if we're really going to follow Jesus, if we're really going to be his disciples, he says that to the extent that we would be excluded from the kingdom of God if we don't receive it like a child. Like this isn't an optional line. To be clear, he's not telling us to be childish. He's not suggesting that to be his follower in the world is to be perpetually immature and to be naive and to turn your brains off from a thinking world. Like he's not saying that. All in the name of faith. He's taking these children and he's dignifying something about their honesty and their self-awareness. So, so children, right? Like, they're unassuming enough. They're weak and they know it. They're dependent, and they know it. They're weak. They're dependent. Hey, they're needy, and they know it. And even when they don't want to be needy, they start crying because they recognize that they're needy, and they don't want to be needy, but they know they're needy. Unassuming. Not trying to cover over their weakness. Not trying to cover over their need. Not trying to cover over their dependence. Children. They recognize, and here's, I say this, I know in the midst of a fraction, a fractured and broken world, but they trust in the midst of their weakness, need, and dependence, they trust that someone will care for them on the other side of their limitations, which is why they cry, which is why we cry, right? 
And this is what it is to see ourselves rightly before the face of God. This is what it is to enter the kingdom of God. This is the pathway of discipleship. Weakness, need, dependence, to see ourselves rightly, to trust that on the other side of our limitations there will be care for us. To be a disciple is not just to see your need one time and go, well, I need to trust God with the things I need in my life. No, to be a disciple is to become increasingly aware of just how needy you are, you have always been and you will always be for the rest of your life and keep trusting God with all of those needs. That's what it is to be a disciple. And there's something else that Jesus wants us to see here before I move on to the next part. You realize Jesus could have told us a lot of things about discipleship without involving children. He could have just said, hey, the condition of discipleship is acknowledging and owning your weakness and your limitations and your needs and finding God on the other. He, he could have just used those words and said it like that. But instead what he does is he pulls a child in here and he wants us to think in these terms. He's specific because he wants us to see on the other side of dependency, on the other side of limitation and weakness and need, is a father who will receive us and one that we can trust. He specifically brings in and he wants us to think in terms of family because he wants us to know, I understand that you might have broken experiences here. And I understand that you might want to cover over your weakness and your need and your dependence because someone has betrayed you there, but I'm introducing to you a different kind of father. And I want to tell you that to enter the kingdom of God has to become like a child because on the other side of your limitations really is a father who won't fail you. The only danger you and I have in thinking of God as father is that we would go on through our lives thinking little of him as father. You can't think too much of God as father. Jesus insists it. And so this is the backdrop. Like this is the thing that this passage commends. To enter the kingdom of God is to receive it like a child in weakness and dependence and need and trust on the other side. Now, let's keep rolling because what's going to happen next is meant to be a contrast and it couldn't be more clear. Pick up in 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. So that looks good so far. This looks like a man eager to be with Jesus and to meet with Jesus. He runs to Jesus. He kneels before Jesus, but he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? For no one is good except God alone. This has always been a troubling line to me in scripture. It's like, wait a second. All through the book of Mark, Jesus has associated himself as God, called himself God, but now it's like he distanced himself or detaches from that. And here's what Jesus is suggesting to this man who runs up, kneels before him. Why do you call me good? God alone is good. This man is just asking what he has to do to inherit eternal life. By this question, Jesus is saying, do you know who you're talking to? You're asking about inheriting eternal life. Do you know how close you are? You're literally within two feet if we're observing spatial distancing here. You're within two feet of comfortable personal interaction with eternal life himself. Why do you call me good? Do you recognize who you're talking to? And then Jesus responds to him, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. But this man said to Jesus, 
Teacher, all these things I have been doing since I was young. And Jesus looking at him, this is a huge line. Jesus looking at him loved him. Loved him. That's a huge line because of what Jesus is about to say. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And this man was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. So here's why I mentioned that this passage couldn't be more of a confrontation with Bible Belt, middle class religion. Because this man is the poster child of what we were told we were supposed to be. He's the poster child of it, right? Like, he's done all the right things and he's stayed away from all the bad things. He's even successful and has a lot of money around doing all the right things and staying away from all the bad things. He's moral. He's conservative. He's religious. Like, he's the poster child of what we're told we're supposed to be. But here's what Jesus is doing here when he points the finger at something he didn't want the finger pointed at. Did you notice that when Jesus went through the commandments, he didn't name any of the first four that primarily deal with God. He named the last six commandments that are all about how we interact with each other. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your mom and dad, don't defraud, all these sorts of things. But he didn't deal with the first four that are primarily about our worship. And so when Jesus turns the conversations to his possessions, he's pointing him back to those first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall have no other idols or graven images. He's pointing him back to those first two commandments. What Jesus is doing is he's actually coming in the back door to invite this man into a conversation about his heart in relationship to God that he knows he needs to have but doesn't want to have. This man would rather just assume that he's good because he's been good, not really deal with his heart in relationship to God. I've just followed the rules. Isn't that enough? Isn't that eternal life? Isn't that, isn't morality enough? The point isn't so much about this man's possessions. The point isn't so much about this man's possessions. The point is about his heart that's being divided between God and money and the fact that he refuses to deal with that. That's the point. The reason that Jesus touches on his possessions and selling all that he has to give to the poor is because his heart is divided between God and money. Jesus knows that, this man knows that, and he refuses to actually deal with that. And so Jesus tells him, I'm not going to be a side piece. It's not going to be the wealth you can amass and me as though we're going to have a well-rounded eternal life. Jesus tells him to go sell his possessions because he knows that if this man were to do this, it would bring him to the place of being like a child. Weak, dependent, needy, and having to trust someone else other than himself. Jesus says, you, just, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you receive it like a child. And so he touches on the issue that he knows, and this man will force him to do that. But here's what happens. Jesus loved him. He said the hard thing. And here's a question I want to offer to you. Is there a place in your life where you sense Jesus trying to invite you into a conversation that you know you need to have but don't want to have? 
Is there a place in your life where you know that Jesus is trying to invite you into a conversation to deal with your heart and relationship to God that you know that you need to have but you don't want to have? Maybe to say it a different way. Is there a place where Jesus is trying to get you to face yourself but you're insisting on shoving it down, putting it to the side, covering it over with the facade of strength and well-being? No, I'm fine, I'm fine, I promise, I'm fine. The house is burning, but I'm fine. I don't need to have the conversation that I know I need to have because I don't want to have it. And if I have it, I might have to deal with stuff, so I just don't want to have it. I'm fine. Is there a place? You see, when Jesus leans on you like this, it's not because he's playing a cool game. He wasn't doing that with the rich young man. It's not because he's bullying you. He does this with love in his heart to help you see that on the other side of your fears and facades, you really do have what you might be afraid isn't there. You have a father who will receive you. The reason he presses you is so that you can see that you really do have a father. You see, weakness and need, things that we don't really want to have in our life, they're actually not a curse. This is like the paradox of the Christian life. Everything in the world tells us bigger, stronger, faster is better. But the Christian life invites us into weakness, into need, into limitation. They're actually not a curse because weakness and need, this is a tough lesson to learn. It's one that I'm preaching going, ah, I need this myself. But weakness and need are actually the unique place where a child can learn who he or she is and who their parent is. It's the unique place. It's like why God gives it to us so that we can know who we are and who our parent is and what their relationship is to us. And so it is with your heavenly father. Weakness and need and dependence are actually gifts so that you can know yourself, a son or daughter, that you really do have a father. But look at this man's response in verse 22. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had big possessions. He had great possessions. Now, I'm not interested in dealing with my weakness and need, Jesus. You can put your finger there, but I'm not interested in dealing with that. I'm going to get my own back. I can't trust anybody else to cover me. I'm not interested in meeting the Father. I don't want to put myself in a position to potentially get disappointed again. My stuff, Jesus, my stuff makes me feel important. My stuff makes me feel secure. My stuff makes me feel safe. I was just looking for some encouragement. The reason I ran up to you and knelt down and did the whole thing with the good teacher bit, I was just looking for some encouragement. I was just looking to get my conscience cleared. I wasn't really looking for God. Is there anything in your life that makes you feel important, safe, and secure? that you end up using as a shield to not have to really deal with God. <laughs> well, I may not have God, but I have this stuff. Well, I may not have identity with God, but people see me a certain way. I'm important. I drive a Dodge Stratus, right? <laughs> to use the SNL sketch. Is there anything in your life that you see yourself as important and safe and secure that you use as a shield from really dealing with God and when those other things are threatened, when those things are threatened that make you feel important and all the rest, you'd rather just blame other people than deal with your own heart and your idols before the Father. Well, that person's the problem. And that, no, actually, it's your idols and it's your heart. And it's your importance that's being threatened. Maybe to ask that one more way. 
Is there any place in your life where you're okay with settling for middle class moral religion so long as you don't have to become like a child and face the father? Man, that one stings for me. But here's the scary thing about this passage. Here's the tension I want us to feel. Jesus lets this man walk. So this conversation happens. Jesus responds to him by saying, one thing you lack, he's coming in the back door on worship with God, and this man doesn't like it, and it says he walks away sorrowful because he had a lot of possessions and didn't want to deal with the conversation that he knew he needed to have. And Jesus lets this man walk. So that sounds stone cold, but, but again, remember it says Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. It wasn't that there's a lack of love here. What's amazing is we almost expect, well, if Jesus is going to do this, he's going to reel it back. Well, I didn't really mean all your possessions, just like the nice ones and, and like, you know, your iPhone and stuff. He doesn't reel it back. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't soften it. He lets this man walk. This man is a walking illustration back in verse 15 that if you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will not enter it. It's not just a sentimental word, like he means it, and he lets this man walk. There's a tension there. Middle class, Bible belt religion would have a facade of all the right things, but a heart devoid of life and vitality with God. And Jesus is confronting things, but if we don't deal there, he lets us walk. Man. Pick up in 23. And so Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were amazed at these kinds of words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Don't you understand this isn't a matter of cavalier feel-goodness. This is a matter of the holiness, the majesty, the might, the power, the wisdom, the reality of God himself. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so just to pause here, this teaching isn't a warning against being rich as though riches are evil and of themselves. This word is a warning of how prone we are in our hearts to love ourselves and the things of this world as though those things can save us. We're so prone to have Jesus plus as though it's just about a well-roundedness. If I can get all the world that I can and have him, then I can have the best of both worlds. And Jesus warns against this. Now look at 26. But the disciples were exceedingly astonished. They said to him, well, if this man can't be saved, then who can be? <laughs> like this man's the poster child of everything we were told we were supposed to be. He's religious. He's moral. He's conservative. He's wealthy. Like he's the package. And if this man walks, then who can be saved? If you're not willing to make negotiations for this guy, then do you do it for anybody? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, it's like he, he totally missed this. Peter totally misses this, shoots his mouth off, and he goes, well, well, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. Because that was the thing that Jesus told the man. It's like, sell your possessions and then come and follow me. He said, well, we've, we've done that, so we're good, right? Peter, you don't get it, buddy. We don't get it. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in this age uh, and in the age to come, eternal life. And he says, the many who are first, those who are great in this world, seem great will be last on that day. And those who seem to be insignificant and small will be great on that day. The needy, the dependent, the weak, and the trusting. Here's the point Jesus is saying. To follow me isn't about what you're giving up. It's understanding what you get. The presence of God. The promises of God. Real security. Real safety. You realize if you're trying to find your importance and your security and safety in the riches of this world, in the acclaim of this world, it's false importance, security, and safety. You can't actually have those things in anything that can be taken away from you. To let those things go to receive the kingdom is not a sacrifice at all. It's what you're inheriting. Okay, so here's the finish. How do we do it? How do we become like a child? Because it's not like it's like, okay, weakness, dependence, need, and trust. Got it. We know it's not that way. <laughs> I'm just going to try harder and get it. Notice where this passage ends. Verses 32 to 34. Jesus tells them for the third time of his coming sufferings. He tells them for the third time of his coming sufferings. Jesus, what happens here is he embodies the teaching. He's not selling a bill of goods of weakness, dependence, and need and trust to us with himself sitting posh. He models in his own obedience to the Father everything that he's inviting us into. At the cross, Jesus was weak, needy, and dependent. And the only Son of God trusted himself entirely to the Father, and he wasn't abandoned. He wasn't abandoned. Even when it looks like the father was hands off, three days later, he was not only there, but he was stronger than he'd ever been. When you see Jesus there mocked, as he says, flogged and killed in your place, innocent blood at the hands of sinful men for sinners like you and me, we spend so much of our lives trying to cover over the places where we're afraid and trying to cover over the places where we're afraid of being outed. But what's happening at the cross of Jesus is that you've already been outed. All the things that you want to cover over were laid on him. All the things that you're afraid of being outed were absorbed in him. Your sin is laid bare before the eyes of God. It was judged and absorbed in the death of Jesus. It's not just that someone died. It's that Jesus died, the God-man. It's not just that forgiveness is being offered. It's about the one who's doing the forgiving, who really has the power to forgive. It's not just that there's someone to receive you on the other side of your weakness, need, and dependence. It's that there's the Father God who's there. It's not just someone. It's God the Father. And if he didn't abandon Jesus, then he surely won't abandon those who come in after him. And so when you see Jesus there, weak, needy, dependent, trusting in the Father, in your place, judged and absorbing God's wrath, there's only one response. There's only one response when you see him there. 
And it's the response of a child. Father, help. Help. I cannot make it on my own. I need the cross and our Savior's blood. What can wash me from my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow? Nothing. Not riches plus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, help. Let's pray together. God, I pray even now that by your Holy Spirit you would do ministry in this room around places where you're trying to get us to have a conversation with you that we know and we've been knowing we need to have, but we don't want to have it. God, thank you that when you lean on us like that, you're not trying to expose us. You're trying to cover us. Thank you for that, God. God, in the places in our life where we're afraid of our weakness, where we're afraid of our dependence, will you help us to see that on the other side of those things, you really are a father. You're not disappointed. You're not weirded out. You're not freaked out. You're not inconvenienced. You love us. And so help us to receive your kingdom like a child. And we would want to say, Father, help. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.